Uh, Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17, says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Jump to chapter 66, verse 1 through 4. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where, is my rest- where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them, and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight, and chose what displeases me. Verse number 14. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord." Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, And I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord." 
on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonial clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this brings us to the end of our sermon series on Isaiah. And uh, I can't recall how many weeks or sermons worth we did in Isaiah. It wasn't, you know, we didn't cover every passage or every passage in as much fullness or detail as we could. Uh, But we tried to get a big picture of some of the main themes and significant passages of Isaiah. And if you recall, however many weeks ago it was, there were three things I stated that I was hoping we'd gain from this sermon series in Isaiah because these are three things that are major themes of the book itself. So the first thing that I hoped we would gain is a higher view of God's glory and holiness. It's one of the major themes of Isaiah. God is unlike anything else in this universe because he's above this universe because this universe comes from him because he made it. A higher view of God's glory and holiness. Second, a deeper view or realization of human sinfulness, of our own sinfulness. That when we just look at ourselves or look at ourselves as compared to someone else, we might think we're not so bad. But when we look at ourselves in the mirror of God's glory and holiness, we see a depth of sinfulness that is beyond what we would comprehend apart from God revealing that to us. And so we see our need for his grace. And that's the third thing, a further, a greater view of God's grace in redemption. God's grace in redemption is the glorious thing that he is displaying to his people and to all the world. And that's what we see come to a grand climax in these last chapters of the book of Isaiah. And it's captured in vivid imagery and terrible warning, the eternal ends of God's working of redemption in history that doesn't just start and end with his people of Israel, but through them reaches all nations and even beyond that incorporates into his redemption the very heavens and the very earth, all things. And way back in chapter one, verse two of Isaiah, we saw that heaven and earth were called as witnesses to testify to the rebellion and sin of God's people. And throughout Isaiah, heaven and earth are called upon then to rejoice in what God is starting to do to bring about his redemption through God's people. And here we see now that heaven and earth aren't just witnesses of that, but they're swept up with it. They're included in it because God's redemption reaches as far as sin corrupted. And that's what we see happening here. But God's redemption reaches as far as sin corrupted. That's why at Christmas in the familiar hymn, Joy to the World, we sing, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. 
far as the curse is found. As far in whatever place in this life we might see curse that results from sin, that's how far further even we know that God's redemption can reach. And so this passage not only brings us to the conclusion of the book Isaiah itself, but really this passage is a glimpse ahead to the conclusion of the whole Bible. It brings the whole plan of God's redemption to its climactic final ending point where God establishes his perfect world that's remade as a result of his grace. It brings us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where things all went off track, where sin made its tragic entrance into the world and stained and corrupted God's very good creation. And not only did it separate men and women from fellowship with God, but along with that it brought a whole host of sadnesses and sufferings and frustrations and emptinesses and meaninglessness that comes into life both as a natural result of sin but also as a way of God's curse upon sin in order to show us what life is like apart from him so that we return to him rather than continuing on into eternity apart from him. You see how significant that is. You see how important it is not to miss that. See, this world is still God's good creation, but the best we experience in this life is only a small foretaste of what eternity with God in his new heavens and new earth is like. The glory of that far exceeds anything, the best of this life, the best of this world. But on the other side of that, even though this world is uh, God's good creation still, it's fallen, it's broken, it's corrupted by sin. And the worst that we experience in this life, and we experience bad things in this life, but the worst that we experience in this life is only a small foretaste of an eternity without God. And this passage shows us a glimpse of both of those things. This passage shows us what God can do and what only God can do in terms of the glory and beauty and goodness of, the, of his work of redemption. He can make a new totally transformed, eternally perfect world. He can make a world without this any bit of the sorrows and sadnesses that are all too common in this world. He can make a world that's so mind-bogglingly good that when we experience it, we will realize that the sorrows and sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to it. It more than makes up for it, such that they become a faint, distant memory. Verse 17 of of chapter 65, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. This is very similar to what Paul says in the New Testament, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. The glory that awaits us outshines them. The glory that awaits us is reward enough to compensate for them. And setting our eyes on the glory that awaits us is more than enough to give us hope and strength to endure through them in the here and now. The things in verse 17, we see that the things that are so painful in this life that we couldn't fathom the possibility of ever forgetting them will be lost 
in the, in the glory of the new world and our new lives in it. Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Obviously, this is not talking about some earthly Jerusalem. Obviously, this is not talking about some city or world that is temporary and qualified in its goodness or just a stepping stone to the final eternal world. But it's a world where gladness and rejoicing go on forever, according to verse 18. Rejoicing, not mourning, grieving, or crying will be the new norm of this new life in this new world. Gladness, not emptiness. Frustration, gladness, gladness, not emptiness, or frustration, or loneliness, or meaningless. Gladness and rejoicing is the new norm. And not only rejoicing for us, but for God. In verse 19, I I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people, God says, because his purposes for his original creation are finally realized in this new creation. Because the world that should have only brought him joy, but so often brought him grief and disgust because of sin, is transformed. And now, It fulfills its original purpose of only bringing him joy and only giving him reason to rejoice and be glad. Isn't that good news? Aren't you sick of the sorrow and sadness that are all too common in this life? Is your heart broken by sin? Christianity gives hope because Christianity gives the promise of a new, real, perfect, eternal world. And it gives you the free offer of living forever in that new, real, perfect, eternal world with no more of the brokenness and suffering around us and no more of the sin within us. That's good news. And that hope enables us to persevere through the sadnesses of this life. It gives us strength to endure them because that eternal glory far outweighs our present troubles so much as to make them painful and heavy as they are, makes them light and momentary in comparison to the glory that awaits. The last part of Isaiah 65 verse 19 tells us that the main characteristic of this world that Isaiah is describing is this, the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. See, all the causes the reason there won't be crying and weeping in this new world is because all the causes of crying and weeping are gone. They're banished from it. And if the cause of sadness is banished, then sadness itself ceases to exist. Specifically, there are three examples that he goes on to describe in this last section of chapter 65. Three examples of things that cause sorrow in this life, which are banished from the new heavens and the new earth. The first thing is death, the second thing is futility, the third is tragedy and violence. First, death. Verse 20, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. What Isaiah is picturing and promising here in chapter 65 comes at the end of history when Jesus 
returns and establishes his eternal perfect kingdom and has fully and finally conquered our enemy death. And what he's picturing at here is what the Apostle John takes up in his description of the new heavens and the new earth, a term he borrows from Isaiah chapter 65 when he writes in Revelation chapter 21. And in line with what it says there, and in line with what Isaiah has already established, we see that death is no longer a characteristic of this new heavens and new earth. That back in chapter 25, Isaiah talked about when God's final victory over his enemies comes, he says, death will be destroyed forever. He will swallow up death forever, it says. And in that passage, we're told that the sovereign Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces. And now we see how that destruction of death and God wiping away tears that results from the sadness of death links to Isaiah chapter 65, where in verse 19, we see the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. And that links to Revelation 21, where God himself wipes away the tears from our eyes. See, as long as there's death, there's gonna be sadness. There's gonna be weeping. There's gonna be crying. But when God banishes death, that's when he wipes away the last tears of sadness from our eyes. Isaiah is describing a coming existence here that's really unlike anything we know. So unlike anything we know here, and he's doing it with terms that we're all too familiar with in the here and now. He's using examples of things which cause sorrow that we are familiar with in our own experience and saying those things won't be present in the new heavens and new earth. And the first thing that he picks is one of the things that causes the most sorrow, death. He's saying, and death is bad enough. Any and all death is painful, but the particular example of death the particular type of death that he focuses in on is untimely death he's using the particularly sorrowful example of untimely death to show the particularly joyful conditions of the world where that will no longer exist where that untimely death will no longer exist verse 20 never again will there be an infant in it who lives but a few days some of you have hearts that break because you have children who never were born. Some of your hearts break because you have children who never made it to their first birthday. And every year on the day when that date on the calendar rolls around or every time there's a reminder of your loss, your heart's broken all over again. There's a day when it won't be. Verse 20 continues, or an old man who does not live out his years. Some of our hearts break because the ones who loved us most in life, the ones we could turn to first and trust most, left us too soon. I wish that my own parents would have been able to meet my children, to laugh with their grandchildren just once. When you need them, they're not there. With every milestone in life, you want to celebrate with them, you can't. And Isaiah's promising that there's a day when death won't rob away the life that we want. People will live out their days, and he's using this describing, he's using hypothetical terms uh, to describe this, that if someone died at 100, he's not saying they would die, he's saying if it were possible in this new world that someone could die at 100, which in our world is a long life, in that world, if they could die 
at that ripe old age, they'd be considered a, a mere infant, he said. It would be considered to be tragically young. They would be considered cursed even, he says. It would be unthinkable because that's how far gone death is banished from this new world. That's how fully life reigns in this new existence. Everyone will live out all their days to the fullest for all eternity because death will be no more. After all, death is a result of sin. If you remember, someone said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God said that to Adam and Eve. And Satan came along and said, you surely won't die. But they did die. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually. They eventually died physically. And they would have died for eternity if God had not redeemed them. If not for God's gracious intervention whereby he gave them new spiritual life. And though they would still face physical death in this life, he raised them to a new life where death would be no more. Where they had eternal spiritual life, where they would have eternal physical life, and where they would have eternal life. The second result of sin that's banished in this picture of the new heavens and the new earth is futility. Futility, frustration, and meaninglessness, pointlessness of Life. Another result of sin was a curse of frustration and futility in life. Genesis 3.17 to Adam, God said after his sin, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat it until you return to the ground. Life in a sinful world, is characterized by painful toil, is characterized by the frustration and futility of sowing for food to bring us nourishment and satisfaction, but instead reaping thorns and thistles that bring us pain and emptiness. One of the curses for breaking covenant with God all throughout the Old Testament that God warns his people of in the Old Testament is the curse of not being able to enjoy the fruits of their labor in life. That someone would go through all the work of building a house, all the expense of building a house, all the effort and time and cost and weariness that that brings. They'd go through all of that hoping, doing it so that they could live in that house and find rest and peace and security in it. But he wouldn't. Because someone else would live in it instead of him. That's what's described here in verse 21 through 23. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them. Or plant and others eat. They will not labor in vain. So he's describing what won't happen anymore in this new world. They won't build houses only for others to reap the benefits of their labor. They won't sow only, for, only to not reap the fruits of their labor. He's describing a world where the curse of futility and frustration is gone. A world that when we set our hands to something, we're successful in it. When we put in the effort of hard work, we reap the reward of it. 
that instead of emptiness resulting from our existence and all we do, all, all that we do in this new world brings joy and contentment, hearts that fi- are filled with satisfaction and lives that are filled with fulfillment. Those things aren't true of this life often. We get glimpses of it, but they often aren't true, but they will be true of the next life. And what this reminds us is that it warns us not to believe the lie that we can find ultimate fulfillment in this life. This reminds us of the curse that characterizes this world. And we're still called by God to work in this life, but we find our contentment in him. And finding our contentment in him is what enables us to persevere through the frustrations that characterize this life. Finding our fulfillment and contentment in God enables us to persevere and endure through the, the, the futility and the meaninglessness and pointlessness, pointless, pointlessness that often characterizes this life. If we try to find ultimate fulfillment in anything in this life, we'll be let down. It will be built like trying to build a house and watching someone else move into it while you sleep on the street. But this promise of an eternal life of ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction, this enables us to persevere through the frustrations of life when they come our way. And we have that in part right now. Because right now we know that what we do for God, even if it ends in some frustration, even if it ends in some futility, what we do for God isn't wasted. Whatever the world's estimation of it, we know that whether we eat or drink, we do it for the glory of God, and we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And that gives us strength to keep going through the piercing thorns and the frustrating thistles when they feel too thick to endure any longer. Maybe every day, showing up to work or doing another load of laundry feels like thorns and thistles. It's a struggle to keep going, to not be overwhelmed with the frustration of it or the emptiness of it. But praise God that in him we can find contentment and joy beginning in this life. And praise God that our eternal destiny is not an endless circle of fruitless tasks. Our eternal destiny isn't thorns and thistles. But it's meaning, it's joy, it's fullness, it's fulfillment, it's contentment. That's what we have in the new heavens and new earth. First thing that is no longer in this new heavens and new earth is death. The second thing is futility. The third thing is tragedy and violence. See this in verses, the second part of verse 23 through 25. Nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. No more tragedy, no more violence, no more harm and destruction, no more murder, not even hatred, no more war, but only perfect peace. He's describing here, and this reflects back to Isaiah chapter 11, he's describing a world 
with no warning signs. A world where you don't have to sign any disclaimers of uh, waiving your rights before you engage in something. A world with no risk, a world with no danger, a world with no enemies, and no more tragedy that results from those things. A world where we're, that's characterized by perfect peace, not only peace between us and God, but peace between us and nature. He describes perfect peace and, and the com- perfect communication that results from peace with God in verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. In a fallen world, a thousand things interrupt and confuse prayer and our relationship with and fellowship with God. We feel distant. We lack faith. We call out and feel unsure if it's heard. We fail to see how God has answered prayer. We get distracted. We don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. We fail to pray in line with God's will. But in God's eternal kingdom, in the new heavens and new earth, that will be gone. Such that before we even ask, he's already heard and answered. We'll have perfect communication with God because we'll be perfectly at peace with God. But even beyond that, we'll be at peace with all of nature. He says, the wolf and lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. This adds something that we didn't see in chapter 11. Dust will be the serpent's food. Again, this is an allusion back to Genesis chapter three where the serpent is cursed to crawl on his belly and eat dust all the days of his life. And this is not only a reminder of that initial fate of God's ultimate enemy, but it's also a sealing of that initial, that, that fate. A sealing in of it. The last nail of the coffin that condemns the evil snake to shame forever. That defeats him finally. So that all enmity against God and God's people is gone. Because now at the establishment of this new heavens and new earth, the victory is final. God's victory is final. The curse is broken. The world is totally new. But alongside the new heavens and new earth, alongside this new world, as one writer puts it, is a cemetery. We see that at the very end of Isaiah's writing. The new world is filled with eternal life and eternal joy and eternal gladness. This cemetery is filled with eternal death. But this isn't the kind of rest in peace death that we often think of. It's a death of eternal suffering. It's an eternal death. See this in verse 22 through 24. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. They will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind. These are uh, powerful and tragic words. And if we're tempted to believe this is an unworthy thought for Christians to believe or an unworthy reality for God's universe, we should remember that Jesus quoted these very words to affirm the reality and eternity of hell. And if this passage and Jesus' own quotation of hell doesn't, isn't enough, 
uh, it doesn't affirm the everlasting suffering of hell, then these words don't mean anything. First of all, they're paralleled to the new heavens and the new earth and the worship that exists in that new heavens and new earth. As the new heavens and the new earth will, that I make will endure before me, so will your name and descendants endure. And then it goes on that as long as God's people are coming down and bowing before him in worship, so will this alternate reality of hell exist. And then if we try to suggest somehow hell isn't eternal, that takes away the eternality of the new heavens and the new earth. This image of worm is an image of corruption and decay. The image of fire is an Im image of wrath and destruction, but normally these images would suggest an ending point because that which is decaying and corrupting would come to an end. That which was burning would uh, burn be burned up and the fire would eventually go out. But in this image, they don't end. The worm said, Ethem will not die. In other words, the decay and corruption will continue. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. The fire will keep consuming them and keep consuming them. And it's very interesting that in the Hebrew, will not die and will not be quenched means will not die and will not be quenched. And the word for hell in the New Testament comes from the name of the location of the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem that was continually burning, where decay and rot just continued on and on because it didn't run out. There's no way around that the Bible affirms that hell is eternal suffering. And if we think that calls into question the justice of God, we should remember that the biblical writers and audiences believed that actually it answered and resolved the question of God's justice. Because all too often in this life, evil and wickedness seems to win. Good and righteousness seems to lose. Terrible evil that exists in our world seems to go unpunished. Often does in this life go unpunished. Those who are pressed, oppressed by that terrible evil and harmed by that terrible evil often go unvindicated in this life. And Isaiah here assures his readers of God's justice, that God has judged evil forever, that God's victory is perfect, and that God puts all things right. That evil isn't the last word. And when we think of all the terrible evil in this world that we can't stop or change, we can find some resolution and hope when we leave it in God's hand to bring justice. But we ought to think, we ought to be sure and ask ourselves whether we're on the right side of God's justice. Because in the beginning of chapter 66, which was read earlier, we're again reminded of who the true servants of God are and who they aren't. And those who think they're good in and of themselves and don't need God's salvation aren't the true people of God. But those who recognize their sin and put their trust in the Savior who died for sinners, those are the true people of God. One writer says, hell receives those who imagine themselves to be good. Jesus receives those who know themselves to be sinners. And it's very interesting that the redeemed are said to look upon 
this cemetery. Certainly they don't do that to gloat in pride, but be, to be humbled about the fate from which they've been spared only by God's grace. We also, on this side of eternity, get a little glimpse, a little visit to this cemetery. Isaiah gives us a glimpse of it, and it is terrifying. It's meant to be. In some sense, it's, it's meant to be repulsive. And Isaiah is trying to give us a gift by giving us a glimpse of it such that we would be repulsed by it it and repelled from it. He's trying to repel anyone from pursuing that same fate. And yes, I mean pursuing that same fate. This isn't a fate that just comes along on somebody because those who find it are those, it's said in verse 24, are those who rebelled against God. Those who persisted in their rebellion. Those who turned away God's offers of grace and rescue. Those who said, no thanks God, I'll live without you, I'll do it without you. Those who threw off his salvation. Those who refused to repent. Those who continued to live in pride and prideful opposition against him. This is where rebellion leads. That's what Isaiah is saying. This is where rebellion leads. If we persist in that rebellion and if we refuse his offer of salvation, if we make God our enemy, we lose. Do you want to make the gamble that the little things you can gain in this life by rebelling against God can make up for the eternity of the consequence for that rebellion against him? One writer says, hell is not merely temporary because hell is God's eternal no to sin. Hell is God's eternal no to sin and rebellion. And Isaiah wants us to face the reality of that eternal choice that lies before each one of us. Each one of us right now are faced with that choice. Imagine eternity to be a line that just extends on beyond the horizon of what we can see on this earth. Your life is a tiny, barely visible dot, the beginning of that line. And how foolish would it be not to take every part of that little dot and make it count for eternity and make sure that we are prepared for that eternity that we face, to make sure we're ready for that final reality. How foolish would it be to think we had so much uh, to hold on to with that in that little dot or to win in it or to gain from it and in trying to hold on to that and win and gain from it, we lose eternity. How foolish would it be to value our own way so much to seek apart from and outside of God what we think will give us fullness in this life such that we invite ourselves into an eternity of emptiness when eternal fullness is there for anyone who will lay down their rebellion and receive it. How foolish would that be? If you harden your hearts towards God, in the end, he hardens his heart towards you. When we soften our hearts towards him, he opens his heart to us and embraces us for all eternity as his dearly loved children. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for what Jesus has accomplished for us. We thank you that though we deserved your wrath, he took it upon himself in the cross and paid it fully so that we could be delivered from it, so that instead of knowing your wrath, we can know your favor and love and redemption, so that instead of being separated from you, we could be reconciled to you, so that instead of eternal death, we could have eternal life. Help us to believe these things. Help us to trust these things. Help us to find hope in these things. And help us all to consider where we stand before you, our holy God, and whether we have received your gracious redemption. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.